Chris Cruz, the Crispy Cruiser, and you're listening to the Atomic Podcast, where he blows up the news on a verbal scale. Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from the Upper West Side, New York City, where we blow up the news on a verbal scale. My name is Efren Guzman, and my guest today, he's a former WCW announcer. He is one of the most professional men in the business, very stern. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the crispy cruiser, Chris Cruz. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Hey, geez, I haven't heard that in a long time. I guess uh, I guess I, I should be paying, or you should be paying royalties to Terry Funk. He's the one who came up with that. <laughs> I know. See, good names always stick. That's that's, that's probably one of the best names I've ever heard for somebody. So, the Crispy Cruiser, Chris Cruz, I hope you don't mind if I say that, or what do you prefer, Chris? That's fine. It's it's fine. It uh, it kind of. I think it was like an '89 or '90. Uh, he and I uh, got assigned to do the the number one, the A show, the syndicated WCW worldwide, and then it just kind of came out of him. And so it's been uh, it's been uh, what 25 years now that that's been around. Wow, 25 years! Wow, you, uh, you call 10 years a decade? What do you call 25 years? Is there a name for that? I know, I know, quarter century. I quarter, guess. Yeah. The quarter century of the Krispy Cruiser. <laughs> Um, let's take it back. Um, basically, um, how did you like? Where did you grow up at? And just take me back to your a little bit of your childhood. Like how how did you? I mean, I, I was born in Bangor, Maine, and, and uh, at two years old, our family moved down to Portland, Maine, which is about a hundred five miles north of Boston. And uh, about nine years old, one of my friends from school uh, turned me on to pro wrestling. At the time, it was in black and white. Of course, this was in the uh, late sixties, and uh, you know, I used to watch uh, championship wrestling uh, Sunday, uh, Saturdays. At, uh, sometimes it was 11 a.m., then it moved to noon, and I just fell in love with it. It was the Chief J. Strongbow and Gorilla Monsoon. At the time, Bill Cardill was still the announcer. It hadn't switched over to Vince McMahon Jr. And uh, and from there, I just fell in love with it, and that's uh, almost 50 years ago, and it's just been, uh, been a nonstop love affair with what I think is the greatest sport in the world featuring the greatest athletes in the world. Did you ever have a desire to become a professional wrestler? or? Yeah, yeah, I always did, but I mean, I'm only 5'6", 190, and <laughs> don't have the size, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm just not, you know, I don't work out, and I'm not uh, a, an athlete. Uh, I, I think I'm probably a little bit more athletic than, than I appear, but, you know, the dedication, and I think maybe that's what makes me uh, as passionate as I am about it, the dedication of these guys, and especially on the independent circuits, uh, to really stay in shape, to eat right. Uh, it's an extraordinary amount of discipline. Uh, and, 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 you know, to be able to, to, to cut a promo, uh, to be able to travel and deal with different promoters, uh, it's a very pressure-filled life. And for, for some people, it ends well, and for many other people, it ends poorly. But, uh, uh, no, there's been a couple of times I've done a couple of matches as a heel manager, and it's just been the most fun in the world. But people don't realize is just running the ropes can be difficult on your back, especially when they're cables like they used to be in WCW. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. You was in a, inside a, of, of a wrestling ring and you got slammed on a mat before, right? Um, I'm trying to think if I ever got slammed on a mat. That's a good question. It's interesting because, you know, I look at the, the different mats and, you know, in the old days, of course, the rings were were like boxing rings and they were like, uh, like a friend of mine says, they were like concrete. Uh, and then nowadays, uh, you know, you see them, they're not quite like trampolines, but they're a little bit bouncier, you know. So, yeah, just even a simple deal out of the corner or a body slam is enough to really just, you know, do you in. But these guys do it constantly every single night. So I, I really think of pro wrestlers as, as almost superhuman beings. I, I thoroughly agree with you. You know, a lot of wrestlers, you know, poor wrestlers, they don't get the, the respect that they actually deserve because, you know, they put their bodies on the line. You know, you, I'm pretty much saying the same thing what everybody else says, but it's a lot of pressure. It's 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 everything. You're working pretty much on every part of your body, and, you know, you're basically hitting your body every single day. You know, your your back and your legs are falling down on a, on a mat that's like plywood and a bit of a spring, but, you know, they're they're putting a lot of pressure into it, and you know you know there's like football training, there's baseball training, basketball training. Not to, not to say that I've done any of those, but you know from 
the, you know, the people, even, you know, football players who actually became wrestlers, they all, they all talked about that, you know, the rest of the training to become a professional wrestler is very tedious. Um, do you agree or disagree? Or? Yeah, it's, it's not only strength training and being able to take bumps, but it's the aerobic conditioning. And I think that that's what people don't realize. I remember The Rock had been away for a couple of years and came back and did a match and he was blowing up because he had this ring rust. Yeah. And so, you know, people don't realize that. But, and one of the things that Ric Flair always did is, is in his training, he always did a lot of Stairmaster training. He was uh, famous for that because, uh, you know, no matter how muscular you are, no matter how, how much charisma you have, you've got to have that aerobic conditioning. If you blow up in the ring, you know, you, you, you just can't execute. You can't do the spots that you've, you know, been wanting to do and maybe had agreed to do and it worked out. So uh, it's the aerobic conditioning that is certainly, uh, you know, essential. It's, it's making sure that your neck is as strong as possible. You know, freak accidents can certainly happen, but, you know, you've got to be prepared for it as much as possible. And um, I've had the opportunity to see guys, you know, backstage, you know, in the, in the locker rooms. And, uh, you know, 10 minutes before the match, they're doubled over in pain. But, you know, the show must go on. And they go out and they do what they need to do. And then they come back and, have to lay down for half an hour, an hour before they can get up. So I really, you know, the, the more that I get to know pro wrestling and pro wrestlers, the more I respect these guys. And I, I mean, I understand that it's, you know, it's not considered a, a quote-unquote real sport, but these guys are real athletes. And, uh, and some of the best athletes in the world, as I always say, they just don't get the credit that they deserve, and that, that bothers me. Yeah, that's that's so true. That's so true that you say that because you know, even like people in mainstream or just people who watch sports in general, like the regular average um, potato Joe sitting down on the couch and you know chugging on chips and whatever. Ah, oh, that stuff is fake. You know, it's that's not real. You know, what's so real about it? It's choreographed, and you know, you know, of course, you know the matches are predetermined, but you know they're feeling something out there. You know, they're taking punishment. So. It's 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 intense. It's, it's definitely intense. What led you into WCW? How did you? Was there an application like for uh, a color commentator? Like how did that come about? Like what led you into the wrestling world? Well, I had um, I was a television reporter up in Portland, Maine, and got to know the manager of the local civic center. And I'd always been a big fan of pro wrestling. And at the time, it was the mid '80s, and I knew that uh, WWF at the time was staffing up and needed some dealing with Wrestlemania. We didn't call it Wrestlemania 1. It was just Wrestlemania. There was no guarantee there would be a Wrestlemania 2. And so uh, the uh, the local civic center was where WWE came, WWF came for house shows. And so I talked to the uh, to the general manager who I'd known for doing stories there and said, hey, look, I need openings coming up at uh, WWF. I've always wanted to, to be involved. And so it turned out they had an opening for uh, somebody to help them with media and public relations. And that's what I did for about six months. And then after WrestleMania, a, a bunch of us all were, you know, we were given a thousand dollars and thank you. And, uh, you know, we went back home. There was no sense that we were staffing up for anything, you know, permanently. Uh, so I went back home, went back to reporting and then, you know, always followed the, the, the ups and downs of WWE and WWF and WCW in the, in the sheets. And I had heard that WCW was looking for an announcer. Uh, in between that time, I'd been at CNN and had, you know, gotten a lot of broadcasting on my belt. And I thought I could probably combine my broadcasting ability. I'd also been an Army broadcaster uh, with my understanding of pro wrestling and my knowledge of the moves because I've been listening to Bill Cardell and Vince McMahon Jr. for years. So just kind of sort of out of the blue, like I'm prone to do, I just called uh, WCW and Jim Hurd uh, got on the line at, at some point and they brought me down. I did an audition and then they brought me down for a second audition in South Carolina and I was offered the job and, uh, and, and that was it. I still lived in Maine but commuted to Atlanta and just loved it, loved every minute of it. So that's kind of the way that I that I uh, got in. And then I left after a couple of years and then went back uh, under the Eric Bischoff regime. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter, I think, of, of trying to identify opportunities, seeing, you know, if you are the right person for the, for the job at the right time. And then, uh, you know, it worked out. It worked out fabulously. Oh, 
you know, you hear so many different stories about Jim Hurd. It's just, you know, Ric Flair talks about Jim Hurd, and you hear, like, other people talk about Jim Hurd. Do you have any funny Jim Hurd stories that you can tell me? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, my dealings with Jim were just on the, you know, on the contract side and the professional side. Okay. So, uh, because I, I lived in Maine, I was, and I only went down to Atlanta, you know, was only there for a couple of days a week, um, I didn't really have much interaction with the guy. He, I would tell you that he was always nice, very professional with me, but he definitely seemed uh, in over his head, and, and I, you know, I haven't talked to him in years, but my guess is that he has a sense of, you know, perspective and looking back on it, and hopefully he was very, he was probably not the right guy for the job, but well, they needed somebody. They had, you know, Turner Broadcasting had bought World Championship Wrestling from, uh, you know, from the Crockett family, and they needed somebody to run it. Jim Hurd was apparently in Turner Broadcasting at the time, or, you know, he knew some people, and he had had some, some exposure, I think, as a director of a wrestling show. And unfortunately, as corporations are, are you know, often do, they make these selections without thinking it through. They say, oh, well, this guy's got wrestling experience. We've got a wrestling company. Let's plug him in. And, uh, and, and it's kind of a sink or swim situation because these companies, especially media companies, they're growing at such a rapid pace. And there's not a whole lot of executive talent out there. And so they, uh, they plugged him in, and it turned out to be, I think for all concerned, it turned out to be a disaster. Wow. Wow, because I think you just hear different stories about the guy, but like you said, you 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 just like he basically just signed your check. He just you know tell you what you needed to be what needed to be done, and that was pretty much it, right? Your dealings with him. Yeah, I had very few dealings with the guy. My guess is he had his hands full with the wrestlers, and so you know, like I say, I would fly down from Maine and and you know do my job and uh, then go home. So uh, you know, of course, I'd be reading about what was going on, and I knew that it was uh, that there was a, a storm of brewing. But after that, no, I just, uh, you know, I just didn't have any dealings with him. And after a while, he just kind of faded away. Working in WCW, what was your first program? Was it Worldwide, WCW Worldwide? Or was it the Power Hour? No, I think it was. And then, and then I, 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 I know that there was some other shuffling, and I started doing, I think I started doing the Power Hour with Lance. Then I did some Saturday morning shows, and I did some Sunday evening shows. Things were always changing there. There was a lot of politics and a lot of kind of backstage maneuvering that I just, you know, wasn't privy to and didn't really want to get involved with. And so, you know, you'd go down and you'd get an assignment and you'd do it. Uh, you'd get another assignment and you'd do it. Maybe you'd have to be a ring announcer. Maybe you'd have to go on the road a little bit. And uh, the paychecks kept coming in. You know what I mean? And so it was just a thing that you, that you did and you tried to stay out of the line of fire because... At some point, I, it seemed like a, a like a real viper's nest. You know, you know, everybody was stabbing everybody else in the front of the chest and in the back, and uh, and you know, because I wasn't there permanently and wasn't in the office, I wasn't privy to a lot of those machinations. So I stayed out of it, tried to keep my nose clean, and just uh, did what I was told. Did you have any problems with any like wrestlers or any um, suits while working there, or? No, not really. I mean, the wrestlers were always very respectful of, of the people in the office because they knew that there was politics going on and that so often the suits and the, the, the people in the office could have, you know, say over the career of a wrestler so the wrestlers knew how to play the game. And they always, you know, the wrestlers always wanted to stay on the good side of the announcers because they knew that, you know, that the broadcasters uh, could help their careers. So I always enjoyed the, the wrestlers' uh, a great deal. They had, uh, you know, generally had a great sense of humor. They were easy to get along with, uh, and very, very professional. So uh, it was always an enjoyable atmosphere for me. Yeah, I know. And you, I think, it was your first pairing was with Terry Funk, or am I am I right on that, or was it with someone yeah, else? The, the first pairing was with Terry. I didn't know him, of course, and you yeah. know, being from Maine originally, I was more of a Worldwide Wrestling Federation guy. You know, yeah. uh, Buddy Rogers years ago, and then of course Bruno Sammartino and Bob Backlund and Ivan Koloff and Stan Stasiak, and the guys on top, and Pedro Morales. So uh, you know, I knew that Terry had been an NWA champion, but he was. Uh, you know, that's the great thing dealing with Terry, uh, dealing with Dustin Rhodes and with Larry Sabisco. Uh, these guys, I think it's important to know, they weren't just great.
really excellent broadcasters. And not just wrestling broadcasters, but they knew television, they knew how to hit a time cue, uh, they knew that they had to, you know, be, be really uh, uh, on point, on target, uh, and, and, you know, to the point, and, and really, you know, make sure that the, the television show went off smoothly. So it was always a joy to work with all three of them. You and Terry Funk had a good chemistry together. Is it was it was a lot of stuff ad lib, or, or was there stuff that you they they did they talk to you with like you know telling you what to say, or because like you two like I thought you two had good chemistry because you was like the straight lace man and he was more like all over the place. How did that? How did you like gel with him? Did you like rehearse things before, you, or it was just on the fly when you guys talked? Yeah, we never did. We never rehearsed. We, wow. You know, we were given uh, 58 seconds on the top, and uh, we did a couple of bridges in the middle and probably about uh, a minute 28 to close the show. And, and you know, we were maybe sometimes given talking points and stuff. Terry would give to me, I would give to him, and, you know, we knew that we were in it together. And it was a very easy chemistry. It very, very quickly developed uh, into a strong friendship that has... Uh, has lasted all these years, and you know he and I have always gotten along. I had great respect for him as a person, great respect for him obviously as an athlete and as a professional wrestler, and great respect for him as a broadcaster and as a wrestling mind. Uh, always very, very underrated when it came to booking, and uh, uh, but one one tough son of a gun, and I always enjoyed being around Terry. Yeah, because, you know, it, it seemed, he seemed like, you know, like he was meant for that. You know, there's like a lot of wrestlers, even in WWE, they had Macho Man, they had Roddy Piper doing commentary, whatever. He was like the perfect fit for that. I don't know. There's certain wrestlers that they wrestle, and then when they do commentary, and then they, you know, they have their little, like, little segments, like you have the Funk Skrill segment. It's almost like they were tailor-made for that. You also did um, Worldwide. um it was also paired up with um, Larry Zabisco and Dusty Rhodes, right? Was there was those mostly for pay-per-views, or you did worldwide with them as well? I think we did. We would do shows for, uh, there was a network called Prime. I would do that with Dusty. Uh, I think we did the Sunday night shows, the three of us. Okay. Uh, and every once in a while, we do some syndicated work. And uh, I was a little bit nervous, I'll be honest with you, about three men in the, in the booth. Yeah. But it always worked well because they knew that I was there to open and close. I'd always make sure, you know, to, to toss to them, to make sure that they got, you know, what they needed to get and that they, they got their airtime. And they knew that I wanted them to shine. That, that the, the less I spoke, the more they spoke, the better the broadcast would be. So, uh, and it was just so easy. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that you would see on TV, it was first take material. We would, you know, our producer Keith Mitchell would say, okay, we get 15 seconds to open, here's the main event, three, two, and he'd point the finger at us, and his finger at us, and boom, we'd be off. And 58 seconds later, I'd toss it to the ring. And it was, we almost never had to do a retake. Those guys were extremely professional. Wow, wow. But it was it was good. Like you, did you? And you also got along with Larry Zabisco as well and Dusty Rose. Like you, you know, it was you said it was understanding, and they were really you know respectful of you as well, right? Yeah, and both those guys were very easy to get along with. I mean, Larry is just a very easygoing. I, I think he's a no, he's from Pittsburgh. Actually, I was going to say he's an easygoing Minnesotan, but um, Larry is just a guy who is a very very pleasant person. Dusty can you know could be pleasant as well. He. He had, you know, very uh, 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 strong opinions about, you know, which way he wanted things to go. But, uh, you know, he, he he was, neither one of them were intimidated by the microphone. They loved the microphone. They loved being on camera. They knew they were good at it. Uh, and it was, I always felt, just a great team, a great pairing. Do you remember, like, some of the best matches you called? Because I know you called a lot of good matches that were on Worldwide, a lot of matches that were so, that were seen on free television. Um, is there any, like, particular matches that were your favorite? There were a lot of the Steiner matches that, you know, keep in mind, you know, I know that they're both older, but they were, you know, young kids, and they were really lighting things up. I mean, the Road Warriors obviously had come in, and they were extremely strong, uh, but they weren't as diverse as the Steiners were in the ring when it came to, uh, you know, the, the wrestling moves. And so, you know, you always, I remember, you know, looking at the format sheets, and I'd, you know, I'd see the Steiners paired up against these, you know, two young guys, two undercard guys, and I would always be like, oh my 
goodness, what are they going to do here? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so it was always interesting to watch. And then there was a guy, um, he was an undercard guy by the name of Sonny Trout. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day we just, the three of us, Larry, Dusty, and I, decided to use every possible fish reference that we could in that match. I wish that we still had it. <laughs> and, uh, and and we just went on for about three and a half minutes about flip-flopping away and the scales of justice. And uh, uh, it was, it was uh, you know, the, and the, the finishing maneuver. And it was just anything we could possibly use. Uh, and it was so it was always fun. You know, you tried to, to give, uh, you know, what we understood was, we were doing pro wrestling, but it was also television. And that, it, you know, even then we had cable television and we were competing against many, many other channels, not as many as we have now. So you've got to produce good, interesting, compelling television and give people a reason to watch. So we always knew we had to be right on target. And after we got out of that booth, after calling five or six matches, we were all pretty tired because we, I mean, we weren't just phoning it in. I mean, we really had to had to give our all to make some of those matches uh, possibly a little bit more exciting than they truly were. It's just so funny back then because, like, you was talking about, like, different wrestlers. Um, there was a lot of matches, especially in Worldwide, they have a lot of enhancement matches or, you, you, know, the, you know, the terminology will say jobber matches, you know, where the wrestlers right. can highlight their moves, highlight their wrestling abilities, moves that you normally wouldn't see them do to a name wrestler because they didn't really get the chance to do it. So, you know, it was, you know, it, it was, it was kind of refreshing seeing, you know, wrestlers, you know, show off their new moves or they come back repackaged. Let's say if they were in AWA, they come back to WCW as a new wrestler and they, you know, had new, you know, new arsenals to their moves. Um, do, do, do you, in, like, you know, hindsight being 2020, do you miss seeing those type of matches? With the um, enhancement well, guys? Yeah, some of the challenges with the enhancement guys was we would have, let's say, five matches in the hour, and then, of course, we try to build up to the main event. And, and, you know, some of the times with the enhancement matches, the, you know, the guys going over, they didn't have a program. You know, they, they, they weren't married to anybody. So it was always a challenge to try to find something to talk about. But I think that that's what tried, you know, we tried to do is, as I say, you know, we were trying to make it entertaining because... You know, we were we we had chicken. You know what? We had to make chicken salad out of it. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it was it was a challenge. So, so sometimes we sit in the green room. We'd all be looking at the format sheets, and we'd be saying, "My God, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do?" And you just go out there and you try to have fun. You know, the best you can. Um, and the fact is, you can. You know, at the time, we were much more uh, moves and physicality oriented than they are now. Now it's all about, you know, character development and the storyline, uh, which is just a change in the nature of calling the action. But, you know, we could really talk about the, the hard-hitting Steiners and the real physicality of all these guys. And that alone, I think, would make it interesting if you were a pure wrestling fan. And then, of course, you know, throughout the hour, we were talking about upcoming pay-per-views. We talked about, you know, Monday Nitro. We talked about uh, what was coming up on on the main event for that hour and even WCW Saturday night. So there was never any shortage of things to talk about. We always had something to discuss, even if the matches themselves were a bit of a challenge, but they, they could serve as a backdrop. And then, you know, two and a half, three and a half minutes later, they'd be over and we called the one, two, three and toss to a commercial and wait for the next match. And then around that time, doing Worldwide, you said um, you left WCW or was, or, or was you released and then you came back? Well, that was the no, first... I, I, Terry, Terry Funk had gotten into some kind of a dispute and he left. And then I think they wanted me to work with Kevin Sullivan and Kevin and I weren't getting along at the time. So I left. I think Kevin left shortly after that or maybe he went to the booking committee. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know who took over worldwide. So I was out for a few years and then, uh, as you know, Eric Bischoff, um, he was kind of like the C-level announcer and he got promoted to run a company. Yeah. And uh, so I knew they needed a new announcer, and uh, and I came down, and, uh, and that lasted for a couple of years as well. And then, boom, that was over too. So you know, it's funny. I I, I learned that in wrestling, and I and I think that's the nature of the beast. Is it's so you know transitory. You're you're here one day and gone the next. I mean, you know, you're always hearing about retirements and injuries, and you know, it's just it's just a it's an ever changing roster. When you came back to WCW, when you did the AAA paper, was it when, when Worlds Collide? Did you do that with yeah. Mike Tanay? 
I did that with Mike today. Mike was a tremendous help. I, you know, I love the Lucha Libre style, but I wasn't familiar with the characters. And um, I know that, you know, it's been, I think, more than 20 years that we did that. And people have certainly been very uh, complimentary all those years. Um, but so much of that, the background work was, uh, you know, with, with Mike. And, and Mike did it off, uh, you know, the top of his head. So, um, you know, whether it was the characters themselves or calling the moves, um, I certainly couldn't have done it without him. Yeah, yeah I, I thought you guys were really good at that pay-per-view. It's like, you know, because now, you know, you have wrestlers with commentary, wrestlers who are commentators, you know, commentating in the color, you know, the color analyst or the, or the broadcaster. You guys were both straight men, you know what I'm saying? No one really made jokes. Like, you know, you took it seriously. I think that's what I kind of liked about it. Um, did you have a good rapport with Mike today doing the pay-per-view? Oh, yeah, but he's another guy. He's so easy to get along with. Uh, you know, I have people in my life who, if you don't get along with them, it's really your fault, not theirs, because they're so easy to get along with. Um, the other thing is that Mike was uh, was a committed broadcaster. He was committed to pro wrestling. Um, and, and, you know, he was also committed to Lucha Libre, as he remains, as far as I know to this day. Uh, and there was the sense that this was the beginning of something really great. Unfortunately, as you know, uh, WCW kind of dropped the ball on it. Yeah. Uh, and, and only now, I'm told, uh, is AAA coming back? What is that? Twenty years later, finally doing a real big pay per view in, uh, in in the in the United States. So, yeah. uh, no, we were all excited. We really thought this was the beginning of something big and something great, and it just didn't work out. Yeah. So what was? Do you know the reason why it didn't work out, or is it just the backstage I, stuff? Uh, I think you know some people do attribute it to the evil motivations of Eric Bischoff and others. But I just think that it was just not seen as a core product of WCW. And at the time, things were really exploding for WCW. And, and there was just not enough time. I mean, I remember Terry Taylor one time told me that nobody ever talks to Eric Bischoff without wanting something from him. And I think he probably just couldn't have envisioned, you know, an entirely, you know, separate promotion that he would have to dedicate his time to. I just think as an executive, he felt like he just didn't have one spare minute in his week. Yeah, like you said, because WCW was on a roll, and I guess to have that incorporated, but instead of having that incorporated, they just took some of the Mexican wrestlers and just incorporated them to the show. So I guess, you know, I guess that was a way to fill in that void if they were going to have a separate show. Was was it hard for you calling the matches, or, you know, Mike today was pretty much a good buffer that, not not, not, not that he carried you along, but it's almost like if you, if you didn't know what a move was or who a wrestler was, he pretty much took over the commentating of, of how this feud got started and what was the process of it? Oh, yeah, I couldn't have done it without him because, I mean, you know, he and I uh, sat down for many, many hours before. And I was, you know, I was familiar on a scale of the five. I was, oh, what, the ten? I was at a five in terms of understanding the characters, understanding their history. I had made extensive notes. I had done some research. I had, you know, uh, uh, talked to a lot of people, and Mike had really filled, filled in the blanks. But uh, there was never a point throughout that whole broadcast where he was unaware of what was going on. So if there was a lull, I could turn to him if I was just unsure about a particular match or a particular move. Um, he provided the historical background, the reasoning for it. Uh, and so, you know, certainly the crowd itself, the live crowd, was really hyped and hot for the event. But as well, you know, the, the pay-per-view crowd, I think, really benefited from the commentary because of Mike's, Mike's ability to jump in whenever it's necessary. Yeah, like, you know, you know, Mike Tanay to this day, he's still doing his thing, you know, like, he's, you know, like, you know, I guess because, you know, TNA is not, like, at the limelight as a WWE, but I think he's one announcer that I wish, that I wish that definitely would have made it to the WWE, you, you, um, you're, yourself as well, you know, too bad you never got to make goals, like, to, to the, you know, to the WWE, it would have been really cool to, to hear your analysis on matches. Yeah, I mean, to this day, you know, I, I wonder if I could alter my style. And, you know, occasionally I'll go down to, to, to Memphis and go to other areas like Arkansas and do some stuff. And I always enjoy calling the, the real the strong physicality of the NWA. Uh, but, I, but I've always wondered if I could do some of the, um, you know, some of the, the storyline and character development just as a professional challenge, frankly. Um, I, I, I wonder if I could do that. And, you know, I know that Michael Cole isn't exactly beloved by the wrestling community, but he, you know, he does the job he needs to do. He does the job that his boss, that the man, wants him to do. Uh, he recently, I think, said in an interview, sometimes he has six people talking to him. 
during the broadcast and the headsets. So, he, he, you know, this guy is a real pro. He really gets the job done, uh, you know, week in, week out on Raw and on SmackDown. Yeah. You know, when Mike Adamley came to the WWE not a couple of years ago, and, you know, I guess it was kind of hard for him. He didn't transition well. I don't know if you've if, if you seen that or not, but when you, if, if you did see him, did you say, wait a minute, if, if you know, if he could do this? I, I, I know if I was there, I definitely could do this. You ever thought of that? Yeah, I did. I mean, he's got, you know, he had a name and everything, and he was, yeah. uh, you know, quote-unquote legit broadcaster. I think he was kind of thrown into the lion's den. Uh, if somebody fails, it's generally their fault as well as their prep person. And so I don't think he was well-prepared. Uh, the other thing about these, you know, legit sports broadcasters is sometimes they look down on pro wrestling and, you know, because of the work nature of it. But no, I mean, I, you know, I've gained confidence uh, as time has gone on, and I, you know, I look back and I think, you know, at the time of that, geez, I can't do this, but then I look back and I think of him and all, you know, the other announcers out there nowadays, and I'm like, you know, I can do this. I've been doing it long enough, and it's time for me to kind of step up. So, yeah, I mean, if it was uh, 20 years ago, I think I would have tried to, uh, to to make the leap, but, you know, time has passed. But, you know, like, like I say, it is kind of a professional challenge to see if you're still up to stuff and up to, up to being able to do it. I was just remembering something right now. I'm not sure that you called it. Did you call the Tower of Doom match they had at WCW? I uh, know, no. Luckily, I, I, I didn't call that. <laughs> luckily, that would have been tough to do. You know? yeah. I, I, I just remembered. You wasn't involved in any aspect of that of that pay per view, was you? Or behind the scenes, or? No, I, I try, I'm trying to think where that was and when that was, but uh, you know, that's that type of match. It strikes me that you know, if you've completely lost. Uh, you know, any originality in your booking, I guess that that's kind of hotshot booking. I mean, where do you go from there? A quadruple tower of doom? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember your last match that you called at WCW? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't. My guess is it was probably just a, you know, a regular TV kind of sort of match. And then, you know, then, then it's over. It's almost like, you know, when you're calling it, you don't know that it's over. But then, you know, the contract doesn't get renewed or you move on or do other stuff. So, no, I actually, I don't. I, 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 that, that'd, be a, that'd be an interesting thing. It was probably nothing of any no great consequence. It was just a just another match, and then you kind of move on. It's, it's kind of funny about life. I mean, you know, I've always told friends, look, you know, you might be living in the good old days, you know, 10, 20 years from now, you'd be talking about it. So enjoy it while you can, you know, really live, get every every second that you can out of it. And sometimes we don't do that. Yeah, that, that is so true. That is so true. Speaking of the last match, let me just go or go backwards. Do you remember your, the first match you called? Well, some of the first matches I called were in the auditions, and those were in the, in the Carolinas. Uh, I remember the Dynamic Dudes. Do you remember those guys? Yes, yes. Johnny Ace yep, and Shane Douglas. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Called, I called that. Uh, I called those matches. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I remember uh, early on, I think I called a match with Ric Flair and Eddie Gilbert that was on TV. Yeah. One of the things I always was concerned that, you know, is WCW used to give away a whole lot of stuff on TV. This was in the days when you kind of sort of didn't do that. Yeah, uh, yeah I remember you that. Know? Yeah, like, it was like the 605 main event or like worldwide, you had main event matches. And at that time when, you, um, when WWF was on television, all their matches were squash matches. And it's rare that they had like a main event because they were only an hour show. But WCW seemed like every match was like a main event matchup, you know, like even Eddie Gilbert was like main event status and the varsity clubs and um, White Lightning, Tim Horner. You know, there was like, you know, they had a lot of good matches, you know, even their jobber matches were pretty good. Yeah, they had to. Well, there was always kind of this conflict because you had it was owned by Turner Broadcasting, a television company, and they wanted good ratings. And yet, it was a you know it was a wrestling promotion uh, where you know if you give away too much on your television, you, you know you're you're uh, not too many people are going to go to your house shows. So there was always a, a push and pull within the company, a bit of a schizophrenic you know sense that are we a television company? Are we a wrestling company? Well, you're both, but you know, when push comes to shove, you're owned by a television company. So do good television and get good ratings. That's the number one priority. Chris, is there any wrestlers or, I guess, you know, people behind the scenes are you still in contact with or still friends with or you talk once in a while? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, you, you'll see guys that you haven't seen in years. I remember when I go down to, you know, go down to Arkansas, of course, you know, Bobby Eaton uh, was always one of the, the nicest, sweetest people. Uh, every once in a while, you know, Stan Lane, who I did some broadcasting with, and uh, there are some people from WWE that I stay in touch with and text back and forth with and call. I think it's like anything else, you know, once you're out of the business, uh, you know, you're out, but then... You know, who knows when you can get back in? I think that's the transitory nature of the of the business. Is one day you're in, the next day you're out, then three months later you're back in there. Uh, so it's not like the mafia; you actually can't leave. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, but 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 it is like the mafia in the sense that, like the you know the the old line that keeps pulling me back in. Mm-hmm. So you know, I still I still read about it online and. That's the other thing that I think people don't realize is there's so much online now in the newsletters and in the in the websites that you can keep up with it. And typically on a Monday night, you know, I'll be on the computer or reading something and I'll have Raw on in the background. I hear it is Thursday night, I guess, SmackDown, but, you know, I, I tend not to watch that show. And I'll read about the pay-per-views, uh, you know, read about what's going on in the network, read about, you know, how the stock is doing and some of the inner workings of WWE. It's, it's, it's a fascinating business. Uh, it pro- probably takes up too much of my time, but hey, you know, that's, that's wrestling for you. You know, with the passing of Dusty Rhodes, um, do you, um, how was he as a person to you, and do you have any stories that you can share, and can you talk a, l- a little bit about how you felt when you heard about Dusty Rhodes passing? Well, I hadn't been in touch with Dusty for a long time. Uh, it was so sad because it really felt like things were coming together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was stable. He was very well-liked and respected um, down in Orlando. Uh, you know, nobody could cut a promo like Dusty. And he really was, I think, personally and professionally intent on making sure that his family was safe and secure and stable. His sons had, you know, had, it looked like Cody had, you know, gone through some, tough time, but was really going to be stable in WWE. Uh, certainly, you know, Dustin had gone through some tough time. And so, you know, that is never, you know, it never comes at a good time, but this was especially bad because, you know, he had lost some weight. He had gotten his weight under control. He's gotten his whole life under control. And then before you knew it, he was gone. Um, he, he was, you know, I, you know, people tend to overuse the word charisma. But he was one of the most charismatic people, both in private and in public. Every once in a while, we'd uh, leave one part of the studio and have to go maybe up to the office. And at the time, we were at the CNN Center in Atlanta. And we would, you know, kind of walk through this food court area. And I'm telling you, the place would just come to a standstill. Everybody would turn around and yell at people like, there's Dusty Rhodes, there's Dusty Rhodes. And, uh, and, and it wasn't just because he was famous. He just had that kind of itch factor. He had the charisma. And uh, nothing could match that walking through, you know, Atlanta with Dusty Rhodes. He was just uh, an inspiring, uh, uh, inspirational, charismatic type of person. And, uh, boy, they don't, uh, they ain't gonna, uh, what, what, what do they always say? They broke the mold. Can you imagine a Dusty Rhodes type character coming coming up in the system now? Nope. Nowadays, this wouldn't happen. Yep, he's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. One of a kind. Also, I definitely want to get your opinion on this. Um, the whole Kogan situation with the tapes and everything. What is your stance on that, and how do you feel about that? Well, my wife is black, and so I, you know, I, I uh, the N word is is just not something that you know is ever pondered here. And so, uh, you know, I didn't know uh, Terry that well. I traveled with him a little bit when I was with the World Wrestling Federation in the mid '80s. Uh, and traveled, you know, during WrestleMania, he and Mr. T, and, um, you know, really enjoyed that time. Uh, he was always a very calm, cool, very professional person. And I, I, I just, you know, you never really know anybody else, any other human being, but you like to think that most people aren't racist. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who are saying, well, he's not a racist, and this was taken out of context. But he said a lot of those things, uh, just in the way that he used the N-word, the way that he spoke, it wasn't just a casual, you know, ghetto N-word kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then he said, I guess we're all a little racist. I mean, he literally called himself a racist. Uh, so I was just, I was surprised. I mean, and shocked and saddened and disappointed, and it just goes to show you that, 
didn't ever really know people. Uh, and, you know, we would have never known this had it not been for the advent of this technology and everybody taping everybody else. And just the, the way that he used it was just so vulgar. It's like his, his, his white daughter, you know, he didn't want her to sleep with a black man. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you thought you'd hear 50 or 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now you're hearing it, you know, in 2015. I know he said it like in 2012 or 2013, but it was deeply, deeply disappointing. I don't think you can ever recover from that. Yeah, it's almost like the same, sort of like the same situation with Paula Dean. do you think? Or is it a little bit different? Well, when she said that she used the N-word, it was weird. It was weird that she admitted it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, and, and I know that some whites will say, well, black people use it when they're talking to each other. Well, that's black people. That's, you know, black people can say that word. White people cannot. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's no excuse. There's no context. There's no situation in which that word is appropriate to be used by a white person. Because when a white person uses it, they're using it in a derogatory fashion. And when black people use it, they're using it in a familiar type of fashion. It's a completely different, it's the same word, but it's a completely different usage of it. And the N-word, when black people use it, doesn't end with an R, it ends with an A-H. So it's just never appropriate for a white person to use that. It's inexcusable, and it's just unforgivable. And people talk about the rehabilitation of Mulk Hogan and Terry Bollea. And I, I don't know that, they, that anybody should be rehabilitated from that. It's just like Mel Gibson, when he was drunk and started raving, you know, anti-Semitic uh, language and talking about Jews. No, you can never recover from that stuff. But, like, Mel Gibson, like, I don't know if he sorted it because he was just in The Expendables, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I, I know what he said was horrible, but it's almost like... Hollywood forgives after time. Do you think, like, the wrestling, like, the World Wrestling Federation will forgive after time? Will you, do you... Well, I mean, Hollywood does forgive, but but only if you can make them money. And yeah. Mel Gibson is on, you know, the, the toward the end of his career. He'll never be a leading man again. He'll never get big money from Hollywood again. You know, yeah, you're right, he was in the Expendables, but uh, I forgot that he was. You know, he's going to be one of, of a group now. He's never going to be the lead guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and... The other thing about WWE being a publicly traded company, you know, and I do think they believe it in their bones that they don't want a guy like that in their business. The other thing is that he made, uh, you know, racially derogatory remarks about The Rock. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so when you get The Rock, when you get Mark Henry, when you get Booker T, uh, not to mention, you know, some fairly liberal, you know, pro wrestling has always been very liberal, very accepting of of diverse lifestyles. If you were homosexual, you were you were not criticized at all. You were accepted. It was kind of like you know, like like the circus. You know, we're different from everybody else, and so we're not going to criticize anybody who's in our little fraternity. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, Hogan was never, frankly, uh, actually in the past few years, all that valuable to the company. Uh, a lot of people were mystified that he was back. Uh, Maybe they didn't have to pay him that much, and you know, they didn't have anything to do with him anymore. Uh, but I, I just don't see any upside to any wrestling organization affiliating themselves with him. And you know, I hope you know if he gets some settlement from this Gawker lawsuit, or if he's over the years been able to to generate some income from endorsements of personal appearances. I hope that he takes that money, he stays quiet, and he fades away. I've never heard from again. I think that would be the best because, you know, we don't need uh, people like that in our culture, in our society. Yeah. I'm saying, but um, do you think um, they did the smart thing by taking him out of the video games and, like, his uh, merchandise and uh, what else? Like, almost, like, taking him off like he didn't exist? You think that's, you know, almost they like doing, like, a, like a Chris Benoit type thing to him. Do you think that's fair or you think that they're just for that? Well, they disappeared him, as they say. I mean, it's 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 the prerogative of a company yeah. uh, to you know to have a morals clause and disassociate yourself from somebody whose actions. I mean, that's what a number of companies did with Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, it's 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 yeah. business, and I think that they that they it's a great case study in public relations. You'll recall that they had gotten a heads up uh, the night before the tapes were released. Their web crew worked overnight to scrub him. And then in the morning before the tapes were released and before Hogan had anything to say, the WWE 
value to the company anymore. And even if he was, the words that he had said and the way in which he had said them were so repugnant and so vulgar and so vile and so worthy of condemnation that there was really no reason for them to, to continue their association with him. Especially like you, you to go back, you were talking about Donald Trump as well. You know, I just find it fascinating that he's ahead on the polls. It's just like you know, I don't know. It makes me think, what 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 the hell is wrong with America? Like, wow, you know, like what's 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 your stance on that? Yeah, it happens all the time. The last time around, it was Herman Cain, and then you know, there's always a bright shiny object for the media to get kind of you know uh, uh, obsessed with. Uh, and then the difference is, I think, what you'll see is when the actual voting, not just the Iowa caucus, but when the actual voting happens. I mean, people are, it's one thing to answer a poll. It's quite enough to go in there and vote for Donald Trump. You know, people are, you know, Republicans after eight years of President Obama want to change. Uh, mm-hmm. Democrats obviously want a continuation of those policies. And so the Democrats, they're going to hear Bernie Sanders, but when it comes time to pull the lever, they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I think it's the same thing with, uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, they like what he's saying. They, they like the fact that he's you know, out there and really putting it to the establishment. But in the end, they know that Donald Trump cannot be their nominee because he cannot be elected president of the United States. Uh, and, and so ultimately they're going to go in there when push comes to shove and they're going to vote for somebody other than him. But they're going to tell the pollsters that they're going to vote for him. But that's, you know, that's of no consequence. What would a young Chris Cruz tell an older crispy cruiser getting into the wrestling business? Uh, yeah, well, you mean the other way around? Like, what, 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 what would me now tell a young Chris Cruz to do? Yep. Yeah, I'd say, you know, maintain relationships. Uh, keep your eyes open, your mouth shut, and, uh, and, and your ears open as well. Um, read the sheets, but don't be open about it. Uh, and, and the other thing about pro wrestling is that, you know, if you're an announcer, you're not a booker. If you're a booker, you're not an announcer generally. If you're a wrestler, you're not an announcer. Just, you know, fill your role. Do, do what you're supposed to do. Do what you're paid to do and asked to do. And that's really all that you need to do. Go in, do your job, do it well, and don't worry about the politics. There's really a, a tremendous amount of negativity within pro wrestling. Uh, and the fact is, there's only so many slots, you know, for every one guy who's, who's in WWE. Or there a hundred who want that, that spot. So you just gotta, you just gotta do what you can, hang on for as long as you possibly can. Know that it's probably not a permanent thing. Look at Jim Ross, as great of an announcer as he is. And he's not a permanent guy in WWE, even though he was there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the independence. Especially as an announcer, you, you're really able to get a lot of experience uh, in the independence and just keep building your repertoire and building your, your video resume. Uh, and understand that in many cases, just like in broadcasting, it's just the luck of a draw. It's the right person at the right time. Sometimes it's about talent, but not always. Mm-hmm. Have you worked with Jim Ross? I know you was in the same time. Have you worked with Jim Ross at the time you was in WCW? No, no. Jim, uh, Jim was always doing the Saturday Night Show when I was there at WCW. But um, I would tell you that he was on the outs with WCW during when Worlds Collide. And uh, and one of the, the nicest things he ever did is um, is you know I got the tape of when Worlds Collide, and he invited me to his home in Atlanta during one of my trips. And we came back, and he gave me a tremendous amount of tips. Uh, so I, I've, I've never forgot that. He's just a, a real act and a real joy to uh, to be around and to listen to. Well, it wouldn't be no surprise to me if one day you get invited to his podcast because that would be an interesting conversation. I definitely would love to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I've told him, and I'm always willing to do that. It's just that the, 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 the level of guests he's got are always tremendous, and it's just a wonderful podcast, something you can listen to for hours on end. Yes, that's so true. And how about Bob Cottle? Because I remember him as well. Have you worked with Bob Cottle? Yeah, I did. And in fact, when I was in North Carolina, I used to visit with Bob. He, he worked for Jesse Helms for a while in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, in fact, I just got to see Bob a couple of years ago. At, uh, I think at a Wrestle Reunion event or, a, or a, an NWA Legends event. And uh, Bob was always just a joy as well, a true Southern gentleman, as was Lance Russell. Oh, and how was your dealings with Jesse Ventura? Oh, Jesse was always fascinating. I mean, he, he loved to mix it up. Uh, Jesse was always a guy who, uh, 
had his opinions, um, you know, chose the facts that he wanted to choose, uh, was not a guy who would back down. Uh, and I always respected Jesse. The one thing that we knew, you know, he'd always talk about running for higher office and governor and president. The one thing we all knew was there was no chance that Jesse would ever get elected to any office. Then he got elected mayor. And then, then when he started talking about running for governor, we said, that's not going to happen. We all knew there was no way Jesse Ventura was going to be elected governor. And then we all know what happened. So, uh, you know, Jesse is always a guy who uh, will exceed expectations. It's it's fascinating when you when you think, you know, you think back, you think, you know, 20 years ago, somebody said, Jesse Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger will one day both be governors of American states. They would have sent you to the loony bin, you know? <laughs> yeah. What happened? I know it's it's fascinating, right? Where Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, was governor. Jesse the Body Ventura, you know, it's 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 fascinating how only in America, as Don King would say, only in America. There you go. <laughs> any social media outlets? If people want to, anything you have out there, you want to plug or any? Well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Christy Cruiser. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook. I I get a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, interaction on Facebook. I'm, I'm uh, approaching a thousand friends, and uh, I was telling my wife not too long ago, I think I had three. So it's, it's been a joy. I'm not, you know, I was just did a, at a conference earlier today on Facebook and all the changes they're making, and it's, uh, they said there's like one and a half billion people now on the platform. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a great place to be. It's, 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 it's never ending fun. So, uh, I can be found on Facebook as well. So, uh, and, and, you know, any other social media that, uh, that uh, I'm at the Voice of America now, so any other social media that they come up with will be on that, too. Uh, Chris, you're definitely a pleasure to talk to. I definitely would love to talk to you again sometime. It's a pleasure. Um, what are you doing now? Uh, well, I'm an announcer and a broadcaster and a reporter at the Voice of America's Learning English branch. Uh, it's part of uh, the government's broadcasting unit, and we broadcast on shortwave, AM, FM, uh, on the internet, of course, uh, at voanews.com. Uh, we're also on television throughout the, the world. So it's really a joy. I get to help people who are learning American English, uh, and our branch has been around uh, for, uh, for coming up on 56 years now. I always said it to myself, even when I was watching. You always had the best professional voice in the business, you know, like you know, like a like a like a upstanding reporter. You always like gave it professionalism when you know you were commentating, and I just thought you left too soon. But you know, I'm glad you know we connected, and um, if fans want to hear you, they can always hear you on YouTube. You know, there's matches there that you called that are still there, so you're forever. Yeah, it's amazing, and I think somebody put the entire When Worlds Collide on YouTube. So yeah, anybody can watch that. Yeah, and you know, your voice hasn't changed a bit. still the same. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I hope it remains strong. It always will. And I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one.